Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Today for Spirit in Action, we continue our visit with John Michael Greer. Last week we introduced you to John Michael, learned a bit about his role as Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America, and we talked a little bit about transitioning to a post-peak world and about the economics and wealth of nature. To tell you the truth, what with the 27 books he's written, John Michael could keep us busy with a profound influx of knowledge for many more weeks. But what we'll tackle today is some more on our post-peak oil world as we learn to cope with the tremendous changes this will imply for us, and also a look at that threatening or perhaps promising date when something mind-blowing is supposed to happen, December 21st, 2012 the end of the Mayan calendar. But I want to start you out for today's program with a little music. I believe it was Pete Seeger who took the original religious song, Old Time Religion, added some new lyrics which take us to some really old-time religions, including druids like John Michael himself, but also folks you'll surely learn about during the interview, Zarathustra, New Agers, and the like. While our show today is about serious stuff, this is Tongue Firmly Buried in Cheek. This version is by a past guest of mine, Tom Rawson. We'll resume our talk with John Michael Greer after Tom Rawson's performance of Old Time Religion. Oh, give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. We will pray just like the druids. They drink fermented fluids, go dancing naked through the woods. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. We will pray to Zarathustra. We'll pray just like we used to. I'm a Zarathustra booster. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. (laughs) 
We'll get a Harry Krishna laugh on With our robes of flowing saffron And our hair that's only half on It's good enough for me Give me that old time religion Give me that old time religion Give me that old time religion It's good enough for me We will pray to the god named Buddha Of gods there is none cuter Comes in silver, brass, or pewter It's good enough for me Give me that old time religion Give me that old time religion Give me that old time religion It's good enough for me Baker, though he seems to be a faker, he should have been a Quaker. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. Tom Rawson performing the updated version of Old Time Religion. Again, we're speaking with John Michael Greer. He's the author of a plethora of books, including some of the recent ones include Apocalypse Not, Everything You Know About 2012, Nostradamus, and the Rapture is Wrong. And were you just trying to get people's dander up when you wrote that title? <laughs> Well, actually, the, the title, Apocalypse Not, was mine. The subtitle was actually the publishers. The, the, something a lot of people don't know is that um, authors and publishers do a lot of negotiation around titles and subtitles. But the point is, is, is a fair one. There's a lot of nonsense about the whole the, the Mayan calendar rollover, for example. There's a lot of nonsense about the rapture. There's an immense amount of nonsense about Nostradamus. And a lot of people have been using those unconsciously or deliberately in some very unproductive ways. So, for example, give us some of the nonproductive ways they've been used. Well, how much have you seen about the whole, this whole 2012 hoopla? for example. There's all these people insisting that the Mayan calendar comes to an end on December 21st, uh, 2012, isn't it? And that at that point, something really dramatic is going to happen and change the world. And if you listen to the rhetoric, you'll find that what it amounts to is what some modern psychologists call provisional living. We've all seen provisional living. It's the, the person who goes, well, I'm really going to go out and do something and, and make something in my life once I lose 20 pounds or once I get that better job or once I marry you know, person A or once I get divorced from person B or what have you. Always pushing things off in the future so that you don't live your life. It's a very common, very bad habit. The whole apocalypse thing is the ultimate version of provisional living. And so, you know, it's, I'm going to live in this utopian world, which I don't have to build because the space brothers are going to bring it or something like that. Or, 
you know, I'm going to get out there and be heroic and be one of the, the few the few bold survivors blazing away at full auto at advancing zombies or whatever it turns out to be. In the future, when a comet gives me this, this heroic world that I don't have to do anything to bring about, it's a way of evading the now. It's a way of evading the world as it exists. And it's a way of evading our responsibility, if we don't like the world as it exists, for making a better one. And it's being used up one side and down the other to justify such things. I was fascinated by the idea that you could pinpoint the point in history where the apocalyptic view began way, way back there, Zarathustra. Talk a little bit about those origins. Well, that, that was, to me, also one of the most fascinating things that came out of my research. And it was actually Norman Cohn, the very great historian of religions, who first pinpointed that, as far as I know, that all of the known traditions of apocalypse come out of one source, and that source is the Zoroastrian religion founded about 1300 BC by Zarathustra. He may have been, he was clearly a very creative thinker, and he may have been the person who first thought up the idea that sooner or later this very unsatisfying world that we live in was going to be replaced by the world in which, he, you know, basically he got what he wanted and that all the people who agreed with him at that time would go on to lead lives, lives of eternal bliss, and everyone who disagreed with him would be plunged into rivers of molten metal, and the, the kind of rhetoric that we've all heard over and over and over again since that time. He seems to have been the guy who came up with it, which is itself an amazing act of, of, of creativity. I'm not sure it was a useful one. Since that time, in ever-widening circles, as the, this very appealing idea spread, more and more people have been convincing themselves that, yes, the world is going to end you know, sometime really soon, maybe like Harold Camping, they set a specific date, maybe like some of the other Rapture fans or what have you. They don't have a specific date, but any time now. And they basically lived their lives in a kind of, you know, apocalyptic interruptus. And was that phrase chosen to be <laughs> invitational of a good response? <laughs> well, there is, there is a very strange kind of hanging in the air almost that you'll find in people who are living in expectation of the, of the imminent end of everything, or an imminent transformation of the great change, whatever you want to call it. It's a very strange thing, and it's very addictive. Because if everything is going away, if sometime really soon you no longer have to worry about your job, you no longer have to worry about your relationships, or all these other things, but it's all going to be taken care of one way or another, that could be very, very enticing, very exhilarating. And so people get caught. I, I, I'm convinced we, we get apocalypse addicts. And this is why whenever an apocalypse crashes and burns, whenever, you know, the big day comes and the rapture doesn't happen or the Space Brothers don't land or fill in, you know, any of the thousands of possible blanks that have been, that have been filled in over the centuries, the immediate response is to come up with a new date. Not to say, oh, well, I guess I was pretty, I guess I made a mistake, didn't I? But, okay, well, let me find a new date. You know, let me get another fix of this, of this very addictive experience. I guess it's kind of obvious you don't think this is a great thing. Are there plus sides to the idea, this whole apocalyptic idea? The apocalyptic idea can, on occasion, encourage people to break loose from unproductive habits. That conviction that the world is changing. But as long as it doesn't 
basically, if it doesn't have the idea that you have to make the world change, I can't think of a really productive aspect to it. Memes, to use the term that I used in the book, the terms Richard Dawkins came up with, memes vary in their value. The meme of racism, for example, has been around for a very long time. I can't think of a single productive thing that it's ever done. It's caused an immense amount of human misery. It certainly made some people feel really good about themselves because they're the members of the master race and everyone else is inferior to them, blah, blah, blah. But has it done any good in the world? I don't think so. In the same sense, the apocalypse meme, the idea that we don't have to fix the world because it's all coming to an end sometime very soon. Ultimately, I don't think it's been a positive force at all. I think it's one of the, I think it's a destructive meme. Can I make a wild guess that you were started down this track leading up to this book about how apocalypse is so very unhelpful for our society by James Watt, Secretary of Interior under Reagan, who felt like we could get rid of the national parks. We didn't need to preserve the environment because the second coming is arriving any time now. The second coming is going to come any time now, and therefore we don't have to preserve the environment. God is going to give us a brand shiny new world to replace the one that we've just spoiled. I don't think it was the beginning, but it was certainly raw material. When I was a kid, do you remember? does anyone remember Comic Kahootek these days? Sure, of course. You remember, you remember Comic Kahootek? There was all this yelling about Comic Kahootek. There were books proclaiming that Comic Kahootek would bring about the end of the world, and then it fizzled. And of course, there were various other end of the world types. There were the Campus Crusade for Christ types, goose stepping down the hallways of my high school, insisting that the second coming was going to happen really, really soon now, and everybody who disagreed with them was going to get the boot in the face forever from God basically, and really soon, and that didn't happen either. Generally speaking, I'm not sure whether it was Kahootek or whether it was the obvious glee in the eyes of you know, these kids who were gloating over the fact that those of us who didn't follow them were going to be tortured for all eternity. That got me thinking, you know, there's something really septic here. Maybe we need to address that, but... It was, it was a long process of research, and really the book didn't come together until I ended up talking with a publisher, and they wanted something about the whole Y2K, or not the Y2K thing, that, that, that was another one, of course, but about the whole Mayan calendar business, and they, they were going, what is it with all these people who are getting caught up in yet another Y13K? Because the end of the 13th Bakhtun in the Maya calendar. You know, people are getting all bent out of shape about this. And let's hear something from the other side. So that's where the book happened. Well, one of the things I found so interesting in this, you traced the threads of this apocalyptic thought. I tend to think of it as a Western phenomenon and a religious phenomenon. You trace all these other threads, including like over to China, and you talk about the yellow turban revolts, the, uh, what's that called, the theology there, the, the something of heaven. Um, yeah, the, the mandate of heaven. The, the idea mandate that... of heaven, yeah. You talk about that over in China and still being existent at least 100 years ago. Oh, it's, 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 it's the reason why the Chinese government cracked down on Falun Gong the way they did is because China has, has more than 2,000 years of experience of religious sects who get involved in politics and then up, end up trying to launch a revolution to seize the mandate of heaven and bring the, you know, the, new, the wonderful new world that's going to wait just as soon as we've replaced the current rulers with the next batch. And, you know, 2,000 years makes you oversensitive. I don't think the Falun Dafa people actually deserve to get stomped, but 
it's worth remembering that the Chinese government, any Chinese government ever, is going to be hypersensitive about that possibility. And that's really been going on for 2,000 years. The first one was, uh, what, year 200s or something? Yeah, it was, what was it, 221? Somewhere in the 220s, I think it was. It was the Han Dynasty, for heaven's sake. It's like the Rome, same time as the Roman Empire. And it's been a continuous process ever since then. During the imperial China, any time the dynasty was weak, you'd have one of these breaking out every 20 or 30 years or so. One of the fascinating little items that I ran into in Apocalypse Not concerned one of the conundrums of most, maybe all, of monotheistic religions. When you have just one God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, then where does evil come from? And as you point out in the book... Yeah, why does so much of life stink? Why do we suffer so much? Why are there so so many things that you'd think... An omnipotent, omniscient, omnipotent God could easily fix. And the thing that you said that just went, light bulb went on, is this is not an issue for polytheistic religions. Talk about that theology. Okay. Well, poly, the, the basic idea of polytheism is a little more complex than it may appear at first. Because it's not just that there's more than one God, although that's central. It's also the gods of polytheism are not omni-anything. Whether any of the polytheist religions, the gods are, they are vastly greater than humans, they are vastly wiser than humans, they are in many cases vastly better than humans, but they're not infinite. And so the fact that, that unpleasant things happen in the world is not a difficulty to a polytheist theologian because there will be some evils that not even the gods can overcome. There are some evils that the gods may not want to overcome for whatever reason. And there's also the fact that the gods are very often at cross-purposes with one another. And so you have, you have conflicts. There's a very ecological quality to polytheism in that just as an ecology is made by many diverse organisms interacting in ways to produce a kind of rough moving balance, so the polytheist sees the universe as being created or being maintained in existence by a very diverse range of spiritual powers whose interactions maintain a sort of moving balance among them in the cosmos. But you don't have to, there's so much that you don't have to explain away. And the whole problem of evil is a very important part of that. A joke that I recently heard from polytheist pagan kind of sums it up. Thor promised to save us from frost giants. Jesus promised to save us from sin and death. Seen any frost giants lately? (laughs) (laughs) Which is, you know, which which is kind of edged humor, but still, the the point is that the gods of polytheism do not claim to completely transform human life and replace it with something that we really, really want better, you know, infinite bliss or something like that. People invoke polytheist gods for help within the realities of existence, and the frost giants there being being representations of the of the destructive inhuman powers of nature. Well, to come back to the idea of apocalypse, the end of the world, the great change is going to happen. The great change, yeah. Yeah. Have you, John Michael, in all your readings, research on this, have you come up with a number of times where a Christian sect has predicted this, set the date, and said, I mean, like what happened last year? It's, it's, almost, it's, it's almost beyond calculation. Pretty much every year somebody is proclaiming the end of the world. And it's been going on since, since Roman times. 
there was, I'm thinking the Montanists who were in, what, the third century who were proclaiming that the New Jerusalem had actually been sighted descending from heaven over some, some godforsaken corner of Asia, of Asia Minor. Every few years, certainly, at least one of these, one of these outfits becomes widely enough known to break into the media of the time, whatever the, whatever the media happens to be. And it's, it's a constant drumbeat. And nobody ever draws the logical conclusion, which is that maybe there's something wrong with the basic assumptions. When, when Jesus, for example, as cited in at least three of the four Gospels, said, you know, some of those listening will still be alive when these things happened, clearly he wasn't talking about the end of the world, because, you know, that was a long time ago. Either that or it was a very bad prediction. Well, that's possible. I, I tend to think that particular prediction was a prediction of the, uh, the Roman Jewish War that broke out in 66 AD. Because many of the things that, you know, if, if you actually look at what he said and, and compare it to what actually happened during that time, it's a tolerably good fit. And so it's quite possible that you know, people were, when, when the gospel got around to being written down, people were saying, wow, you know, he predicted that, this kind of stuff. But then later on, it got misunderstood. People lost track of the fact that they were talking about this historical event, which would have been perfectly reasonable for, you know, somebody to spiritually advance to warn other people about, you know, you're going to be around when this happens, guys. Be ready to head for the hills. Well, it certainly happened a lot across the centuries and including in the USA, care to talk about a couple of the more notable ones, like the Great Disappointment? Oh, yeah, the Millerites. Yeah, William Miller was a hard-scrabble New England farmer and student of the Bible who became convinced that he'd worked out the actual date. He spent rather a number of years going up and down the back roads of New England, preaching in meeting houses, that it was going to happen in 1843 or maybe 1844. You know, based on this complicated set of calculations out of the book of, books of Daniel, that by around 1840, there were enough people in you know, America at that time who really wanted to hear. It was very much a situation like this one. There had been you know, the very big liberal political movement immediately after the War of 1812 and with anti-slavery, the first stirrings of modern American feminism, and so on, a variety of liberal causes. And people had gone out trying to change the world, make the world a better place, very much like the 60s. And it didn't really work. I mean, they got, some, they got some very important changes to happen. But it became increasingly clear that the big cause, which was anti-slavery in those days, was not going to go anywhere without one heck of a fight. And we're not talking about uh, moral conflict, but actual war. And so people were looking for other answers. That you had the transcendentalist movement, you had various the, the equivalent of the New Age movement nowadays, and of the alternative spirituality scene. People turning aside from the the unsolved political conundrums toward a spiritual answer, and then that didn't work either. Then just as our New Agers have not managed to make you know the, to create their own reality the way they expected to. And so finally, the idea that there was going to be some, you know, there, there would be a grand transformation of everything, and they'd get everything they wanted, was very appealing to people. And so you had hundreds of thousands, possibly a couple of million people, bailing into the whole Millerite business, convinced that, that Jesus was going to come in glory in the clouds in 1843 or 1844 and fix the world. It finally narrowed down to a specific date. That was October 22nd, 1844. And hundreds of thousands of people gathered on hilltops across the country. Hilltops, because you want to see Jesus appear in the clouds. You want a good view. Okay? And there they were, praying their heads off. And nothing happened. That actually put paid to 
to large-scale apocalyptic in the United States for some years because the embarrassment of what came to be called the Great Disappointment was, was, was kept in mind by a lot of people. You had a lot of little apocalyptic sects after that, but they were little. They, didn't make, they, they never got the kind of media exposure the Millerites did. But eventually the lesson was lost. Now, you also mentioned a number of apocalyptic movements which are secular, which don't have a specific name of a god in there. Communism or Marxism amongst them. Oh, Marxism. Marxism, Marxism is the perfect... It's, it's really the furthest extension of, of well, I suppose, what you'd have to call back, what would be called back then a Christian heresy, in the direction, in a particular kind of social liberal direction, that ever was. It takes over all the basic ideas of mainstream Christian orthodoxy and simply twists, puts them into a secular mode. So, in place of Eden, you have primitive communism. In place of the fall of man, you've got the, the invention of private property. In the place of you know, the veil of tears, various dispensations and so on that, that come between then and the birth of Christ, you have the various stages of feudalism and, and early capitalism and so on. In place of you know, Christ and his apostles, you have Marx and his disciples. You have the acts of the first international as the acts of the apostles. You have the conflict between the few true believers in, in the gospel of, of Marx and, and an evil satanic society dominated by the evil power of late capitalism. Finally, you have the coming of the millennium, the, the second coming of Marx in the, in the form of the revolution of the proletariat. You have the millennium of socialism, and then finally, the new Jerusalem of the communist utopia descends from the heavens and everyone's happy forever and ever. It's literally the same theology with a few of the words changed and some serial numbers filed off. And it worked out perfectly, didn't it? And we saw how well that one worked, yeah. That's the problem with the apocalyptic theory. You can get a revolution with one. You can lead people to do the most preposterous things. You can lead people to do the most brutal and cruel things. But you can't get utopia, no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you believe. You know, <laughs> the, the New Jerusalem of communism did not descend from the heavens. The socialist utopia turned out to be gray, bureaucratic, and rather heavily laden with prison camps in every case that it was tried. Well, one of the other ones that you mentioned, and, and you talk about some of these secular-type movements, apocalyptic movements, going back as far as the 14th century, one of the times that particularly interested me was this explosive movement that started in England in the mid-1600s. It's foment that led to the replacement of the king, whole mess of turmoil, and I'm particularly interested in that period because that's when Quakers happened to originate. And you mentioned all other kinds of groups, so too, the, the Fifth Monarchy Men, the Levelers, the Diggers, and the Muggletonians. The Muggletonians, yes. Lodowick Muggleton, and I forget the name of his cousin, became convinced that they were the witnesses described in the, the Book of Revelations who, who would go around witnessing about the, about the, the imminence of the Second Coming. And the, the Muggletonians were a significant presence in Britain for some years until it became very clear that the Second Coming was not showing up on time. The Quakers actually have, have a very interesting relationship to that because they came out of that movement of apocalyptic thing. They, had, they did, the, to my mind, seems to be the sensible thing, and paid attention to their own experience instead of pushing toward this idea that the world was going to be totally changed next Thursday. So they're one of the rare groups that said, okay, I guess this isn't, maybe we don't just have to change the date? Yeah, exactly. exactly. And that does happen. You get that every so often that people pop out of the apocalyptic thing and say, oh, okay. So obviously 
this is the world that we've got, and how do we lead us a life within the world that God or whoever has made for us? That tends to be a much more useful question to ask, and it leads to various productive places. And I would point out also the Quakers are still around. You will not find a lot of diggers, ranters, fifth monarchy men, Muggletonians, or what have you these days. But on, on the other hand, there's many successions of, whether it's Yellow Turban and over in China, or you'll find the evangelical Christian of the apocalyptic left-behind oh, yeah. mode, they're still around, and they do seem to propagate, though, don't they? It, they, they put, that's, that's the thing about a meme, it propagates. And it doesn't have to be helpful, it just has to be appealing. Would you explain what a meme is for those who haven't read Apocalypse Not? The idea, as, as Richard Dawkins pointed out back before he, was, he became primarily a, a promoter of atheism and was actually doing theology, a meme is a set of ideas that spreads through a human community the way that a gene spreads through a gene pool because it has some kind of selective advantage that propagates it in place of others. It's a, it's a dominant gene rather than a recessive one, typically. And so it's a set of ideas that communicates itself. You know, it, it encourages its own communication. In the case of a, the apocalypse meme, if you believe the world is going to end, what's the first thing you do? You tell all your friends and neighbors, because that's part of the meme. This is news. You don't keep it to yourself. You can't. The world's about to end. Everyone must know. That's part of these ideas. And they spread. If, to shift metaphors a little bit, it's like, it's, like, it's like a cold virus, okay? It's very catchy. It survives to the extent that it can keep on finding new hosts. Well, an apocalyptic meme is obviously very good at that. So does Druidry not have the genetic susceptibility to it? Is there no way that you can have a druidic apocalypse? I suppose it's possible, but it's never happened. I don't know of any druid group anywhere that has embraced an apocalyptic theology, or even gotten close to one. I suppose, you know, if, if you are focused on nature as it is, it's kind of, it, it may be a little harder to get caught up in this idea that it's about to be replaced by, in effect, some set of daydreams. I've seen some pagan writings that I guess kind of get connected to New Age that are talking about 2012 as the, the coming of the New World, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Uh, so how far is it from, I mean, I, I think Druidry is uh, perhaps uh, one variety of paganism or something, but how related are they or is there a connection? That's actually a complicated issue because... Well, we all know that the pagan traditions, the pagan traditions we have now date back to the dawn of time, but the dawn of time in this case is about 1947. Most of modern paganism is either directly descended from Gerald Gardner's invention of Wicca or is in, in some ways inspired by it. And so it comes out of that particular mix, and, and it drew very heavily in America, especially from the same sources that the New Age drew from. The Druid revival is older. But the existing Druid groups these days trace their heritage back to the 18th and 19th centuries. And so while there's been a tendency for Druid groups to be sort of lumped together with the, the broader pagan scene, there's an extent to which they don't really have that much in common. There are things that you will find in the modern pagan scene, in the modern neo-pagan scene, that you will rarely find in the older, in the older more traditional Druid groups. And of course, there's, again, there are, there are overlaps. There are fusion groups. There are groups that, that borrow from some of the old Druid traditions, some of the newer neo-pagan traditions and this kind of stuff. But, but they're diff you know, it's definitely a blend. It's not, it's not a case where there's an identity. Well, we've already mentioned this, but I want to make clear what your take on it is, John Michael. 
the 2012 end of the Mayan calendar. Is it or is it not accurate to look forward to December 22nd, 2012 as the end times or the beginning times or whatever, dawning of the age of Aquarius, whatever? Is that not accurate? Yeah, the age of Aquarius started in 1879. It was was widely proclaimed at the time. Um, No, the thing is, the Mayans didn't predict anything for December 21st, 2012, for Ahau 3-Kan-Kin 13-0-0-0-0 in their calendar. They did not predict anything. The whole thing was invented, essentially out of whole cloth, by the late Jose Arguelles. I take it you're not worried. I'm not. I have already given a name to that day, which I'll be talking about in late December, and that day is Nothing Happened Day. (laughs) We're going to see the exact same thing that happened with the Millerites. There are going to be all these people waiting at Tikal and and other Mayan ruins or standing on hilltops and various other places waiting for the Space Brothers to land or the comet to hit or the the great wave of consciousness in the world that they think they deserve, and nothing's going to happen. And people will be saying for something, oh, yes, we felt the great change of consciousness. And then, you know, we'll be dealing with the aftermath of an election and all the usual stuff. And it will be, even the most frantic true believers, it will sink in that, guess what? Nothing happened. And then they'll pick another date. Actually, the other date's are already starting to come out. Willie Stryber, who, who did a lot to promote 2012 back a few years ago, has a book out now arguing for 2020 as the Omega Point date. So he's sensible. He's getting his ducks in a row in advance. (laughs) So if the world does end on December 22nd, would you be willing to come back on my show on the 23rd and apologize for your skepticism? Certainly. If the world if the world ends, schedule me in. And actually, if the world doesn't end, I'd love to come back on the show also. And then we could talk about nothing happened today and do a sort of post-mortem on what... What to do now that the world, when the world's still around? No, wait, that's the wrong terminology. A post-mortem because it didn't end? Or say a post-vivum? I'm not sure what the, what the okay. right phrase would be. <laughs> well, perhaps I'd better remind our listeners, this is Spirit in Action, and I'm Mark Helpsmeet, host for Northern Spirit Radio Productions, website northernspiritradio.org home for just shy of seven years of archives of Spirit in Action and our other weekly program, Song of the Soul. There's links to our guests, a place to help ensure we continue the future by donating online, or you can mail us a donation. There's a place to comment about this or other programs, or in general. Please talk back to us and help us get to know you, your thoughts, feedback, and possibilities for future programs. Now, back to our guest, John Michael Greer, Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America, and author of 27 books. Before I return to some questions about our adaptation to a post-peak oil world and general environmentalism, I've got one more about apocalypse, John Michael. That is that environmentalism, there certainly have been environmental apocalypse concepts and such. You've written pretty extensively about peak oil, post-peak oil, the world then. Is it not apocalyptic writing because there's no big miracle that happens at that point? Is Is the miracle part of it the thing that makes apocalyptic so powerful generally for folks? It's partly the miracle. It's partly the idea that something's going to happen like really soon and there's going. And it's partly the projection of daydreams onto the future. 
Because usually what an apocalyptic vision amounts to is that there's going to be this big change and then whatever I really want to happen is going to happen. All that I'm saying in my books on peak oil, it's not that the world is going to end. It's that history is going to follow its usual course. And one of the things that usually happens in history is that when a civilization overshoots its resource base, it goes into decline. Now, the word decline is one you could hardly say nowadays. People won't hear it. They think, you know, the future has got to be either continued progress or total catastrophe, nothing in between. That's one of our great blind spots as a culture. But in fact, industrial civilization is already in decline by most measures. And we can expect that decline to continue and accelerate of our mismanagement of our relationship with the natural world. If we were to revision that relationship, if we were to start paying attention to the fact that our prosperity, our lives, our economies, every part of, of what makes of human society is completely dependent on having an intact biosphere, and take that seriously and take action, we could level out that decline at a certain point. We probably have it, we, we made enough mistakes, there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of damage to undo. But we could level that out, restabilize and and create what, what I called in the book of that title, the ecotechnic future, it's a future society in which we can maintain a fair amount of technology in harmony with the natural world and in, in a situation that's sustainable over the very long term. If we don't do that, we're going to go through history as usual, which means you know the long flow decline of one to three centuries into a dark age. It's not a big deal. All of our ancestors went through it. Our descendants will probably have to slog through it again, unless we get a clue. That's not apocalyptic. It's simply saying, okay, we're not special. We're not destiny's darlings. We don't get to dodge the usual fate of civilizations unless we're smart enough to take action. And hopefully by listening to you and a number of other people who are looking at the facts, we will get smart enough. We will make the intelligent decision. It would be nice. <laughs> it would be very welcome. Well, in terms of that ecological future, and I, and I think this maybe also relates to what people might choose in their year of initiation as druids, but... What kind of things? Just give us a range of things that one might do to take that step of connecting with the Earth, which might prepare us for this ecotechnic future. I mean, what, what kind of things are we talking about? Okay. Well, they, again, they range from the very simple to the relatively complex. It's not necessarily a good idea to pile into the big ones all at once. It depends on your circumstances. One of the simple ones is to take an inventory of the cleaning products you use at your house and get rid of the chemical ones. You can clean most household, most household cleaning things with soap and baking soda. Okay? Those do not destroy the environment. Many of the chemicals in modern cleaning products, they're lasting toxins. You, you flush them down, you, you pour them down the drain, they're going to be poisoning fish for a very long time. We have this delusion, if I may interject something here, that there's this place called away. And when you get rid of something, when you pour something down the drain or put it in the garbage or what have you, it goes to this, this non-existent place called away. Okay? There is no such place. Whatever you put down the drain is going to come out your tap eventually. <laughs> Whatever you leave, you, know, you, you put it in the garbage, it goes to the landfill, it's going to get into the water supply, it's going to get in the air. What goes around comes around is one of those basic laws. And making taking the time to sort through how you're, what, what, what you're using just to clean the house. That's a very basic choice. I should say there's a lot of very highly marketed green products, usually about three times the price of their chemical equivalents. You can get it at, at upscale stores these days. 
And unless you really want to put in the extra money supporting the profits of often some very large corporations that are selling you that stuff, again, soap and baking soda will do you just as good. That's one example. Another example is one that I, I can guarantee you, I will say it, and there will be this immediate horrified gasp across the entire range of your listeners. They will probably hear it on the moon, and that is very simply, get rid of your car. Okay. In America, we fetishize automobiles. Cars are our – cars symbolize the freedom that we don't have anymore, but we like to pretend we have. Some of them fetishize more than that. Um, the, S, the, the whole fad for SUVs, remember back in the day, people were – not that long ago, people were insisting, oh, I've got to have SUVs to protect my children. Well, you know, the, the SUV lifestyle is the major thing that's threatening your children. We don't need cars, most of us. Great. Even in America, many, many people can get by without a car or at most need to keep it parked in the driveway, say, six days a week. It requires a willingness to take a little more time, accept a few more limits, maybe change the relationship of where you live, where you shop, and where you work so that you, they're not separated by vast distances like be reasonable about that. But many, many people in America can simply do without their cars and, and suddenly discover they have many hundreds more dollars a month that they used to be throwing down the, the gas tanks and, the, you know, and everything else of their, of their vehicles. These are two extremes, one very simple, one very complex. Both of them require that we actually pay attention to our lives and say, okay, this is a change that I need to make. Here is something that I need to do in order to relate in a more constructive way to the, to the living earth. And I, I don't imagine that many of our listeners will be inspired by this to suddenly up and get rid of their cars, although you know, I can hope. But I hope you know, the idea will at least percolate in that all of these things that we take for granted, that use preposterous amounts of energy, that put out all this pollution, that use all these resources, that demand, say, all the additional resources for roads and freeways, we think they're normal. They're not. We lead lives that have become structured around these things, but we don't have to lead those lives. We can actually change our lives. And that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. That's, or if you will, where the shoe leather meets the road. I was wondering about which metaphor you were going to use there. I assume that because this is included in, in druidic practice, that attention to the seasons not necessarily just, you know, the solstices, equinoxes, the cross-quarter days, all those, but just attention to the seasons in a way we don't, since we're in this cocoon of our houses or our air conditioning or our heat or whatever, that this would be a fundamental step. If we, if we were paying attention to that, it moves you a bit closer to, I think, reality. It moves you a lot closer to reality. People in America basically have this idea of progress. I mentioned the, the, the idea that progress is the, the, you know, growth is this basic law of existence. And it's totally unnatural and it's totally unseasonal. If you pay attention to nature, to the book of nature, the scripture of the Druids, if you will, that's where you start realizing there's a cyclical pattern of things. Spring leads on to summer. Summer leads on to fall, and fall may be the harvest, but it's also when the weather's starting to cool and the days are getting shorter. We act as though we live in a world where summer is followed by uber-summer, and uber-summer by uber-uber-summer, and so on off into eternity, and the harvest just keeps on coming in bigger and bigger and bigger every year. We think we live in that kind of world. We don't. In a very real sense, 
the preposterous abundance and extravagance that we've all grown up with, we've been gathering in the harvest for half a billion years of fossil sunlight, and we've been wasting it. Where our great-grandparents knew perfectly well that the whole harvest was the time you put stuff up, you stored things, you knew when the harvest comes, winter's not far away. We've lost track of that, and so we've been burning through the harvest like nobody's business, pouring it down the, you know, the, into, the, into our SUVs and flying around the world and all this kind of stuff, flying strawberries to supermarkets in January, and losing track of the fact that when harvest comes, winter is not far. There is fall, there is winter, and, and eventually spring in the, in the broader cycles of time. Many civilizations have passed through this cycle of the seasons many times in the past. We're not exempt from it. We just think we are. If you get to learn the rhythm of the seasons, if you get used to the fact that things rise and fall, they expand and they contract, time moves in that kind of cycle, then it becomes much easier to incorporate that into your vision of the world. It becomes much easier to incorporate that into your vision of life. Each of us will go through a spring a summer, an autumn, and a winter. And imagining that life only matters if we can pretend to be 17 years old forever looks remarkably stupid. Once you grasp that, and once you grasp that every season has its beauty, every season has its gifts. And you know, in an economic sense, I think that in the U.S., I mean, this idea of increasing abundance, everything we have to have continual growth, all of that, that one way that it's been living out, not only in the sense that, you know, our, our kids have to be better off than we are, have more things than we have, but it shows up in our decreasing savings, that we've decreased our economic savings each generation, such that people 100 years ago were saving half of their income. Our incomes are much larger now, and we, we save a pittance. The only saving that we have now is, is a mathematical artifact because more people are paying down their debts than are running up new debts, and that's largely because the banks are loaning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's, it's a complex thing because, of course, there's also the fact that although you know, inflation is under control, but gosh, prices keep on going up. How does that work? <laughs> yeah, well, th there was a guy many years ago, Bertram Gross, wrote a book called Friendly Fascism which I highly recommend to our readers. One of the things he predicted, this is back in the early 70s, that economic indicators would become economic vindicators, that statistics, economic statistics, would be systematically massaged by governments around the world, ours, everyone else's, to make things look good. And that's become a growth industry. That's a, one, of the, one of the biggest growth industries we've got these days is remanufacturing our own statistics so that, for example, when people run out of unemployment benefits, they're no longer counted as unemployed. That's been the case in the United States for many years now. So the figures come out, you know, you know unemployment rolls have shrunk. More people are working. No, more people have hit their 99 weeks. <laughs> but you can't say that generally speaking, certainly in the mainstream media, you're not going to hear that. There's a lot of that kind of nonsense. And there's also the simple fact that nobody wants to deal with the fact that it takes two incomes now to afford the kind of lifestyle that one income could afford when I was a, when I was a child. And that's, not, and that's not just because you're eating more than you that's used to, That's not because Michael. we're eating. The, the whole, don't even get me started on that, the whole, quote, obesity epidemic, which was generated, by the way, by lowering the definition of obesity. Marilyn Monroe, at the peak of, her, of the sex kitten phase of her career, wore a size 12 dress. 
if you want people to spend a lot of money on diets and diet products and surgery and things like that, convince them that they're too fat. It's a good approach. But that's another point entirely, and that gets us into all of the very corrupt ways that you know, various groups in our society manipulate the general public for their own profit. I want to mention we've been speaking with John Michael Greer, author of a plethora of books, uh, 26, 27, probably 29 by next week when you hear this. <laughs> <laughs> One of them we've talked about is the Druidry Handbook, Apocalypse Not, Everything you want, you know about 2012, Nostradamus and the Rapture is wrong. Those are just a couple examples. You can follow his blog on the archdruidreport.blogspot.com. You can find him everywhere with that much print that he's putting out. And it's all fascinating, engaging, and worthwhile stuff for our world. There's a reason I chose to have him here on Spirit in Action. And I'm so happy, John Michael, that you could join us. I very much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks much. And to all you listeners, here's a little music to send you out with for this version of Spirit in Action. Coming up on four years ago, I had a wonderful musician on my Song of the Soul program, a man who captures some of the same magic of encounter with our natural world in his songs. His name is Chris Pfeiffer. This song is Magic in the Moon. See you next week for Spirit in Action. Seeds in the apple, apples in the seed, the curious cat, the child in me. Notes on the page, ear in the tune, rocket ships and fuel, magic in Without, without or within Briefcase and graphs Water and wind Down to the second Somewhere around noon The eagle is landed Magic in the moon Oh, how do It all
rumors and facts, sand and glass. Just who is it? The ranger's mask. Terribly late, or the wise cocoon? One giant leap, or magic in? Theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.